Now, I have partnered up with therapist Jane McClellan, who is a two-time terminal cancer survivor, and I offer you the How to Starve Cancer online course with lifetime access. Simple strategies to starve your cancer without starving yourself. This easy-to-follow course has been designed to make Jane McClellan's book, How to Starve Cancer, visually more explanatory, and it makes the science simple so that you can personalize your approach to achieve optimal results to stop your cancer from growing. Now, this course will elevate your understanding of cancer metabolism so that you can be confident that you are adding the right therapies and supplements. The How to Starve Cancer course will teach you the entire picture, how cancer starts, what drives it, how it feeds and how it progresses, gets you back in the driver's seat and gives you the best chance to win the battle. So go to drwardbond.com and get the program today. If Webster's Dictionary had a definition for video vixen, Bobby Jean Brown was that definition. And she will forever be the hottest video vixen ever to appear on MTV thanks to the band Warren's Cherry Pie music video. But every girl wanted to be her but every guy wanted her. Now, Bobby Brown once took ownership of the Sunset Strip as her own personal playground. And when instant stardom hit, she continued to get lost in the world of rocker boys, drugs, and the never-ending partying lifestyle that Hollywood was known for. Now, she spent decades trapped in a perpetual cycle of self-destruction, a chronic self-saboteur who stumbled and struggled her way through an endless parade of bad habits, bad relationships, and bad decisions to find herself, at last, on the righteous path far from the Sunset Strip. Now, if you think you know who Bobby Brown is by reading the pages of her books, Dirty Rocker Boys and Cherry on Top, you aren't even close. A new book is being written, and the ink isn't even dry yet, because this time, it's with a guiding hand. She's come full circle and face-to-face -face with an amazing grace that can only be described as miraculous. Today, she is here to tell the rest of her story. Let's welcome the one and the only Bobby Jean Brown. Welcome, Bobby. Hi, Ward. How are you? I'm doing great. Now, let's just kind of start at the beginning a bit here. I mean, what was life like growing up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana? Hot. It was hot. Um, it was, it was a Southern, it was just like a Southern slow town. And uh, it was nothing compared to California or Sunset. And I remember when I landed in Los Angeles, that the energy of just landing, I could feel the energy of what that town feels like, right? And for some, for some reason, I just was drawn to it like a moth to a flame. Well, you know, what was your ultimate goal? I mean, when you flew out there and stepped off the plane in L.A., what was your mindset like? What was your goal? Um, I used to be bullied and teased in school. And <laughs> they would call me uh, Boobless Bobby. I know, it's crazy. And um, also some person told me that I was only good at being pretty. So I don't know if that kind of stuck in my head or I just remember telling the kids at school, you know, one day I'm going to be a famous model and you'll see, 
and the bus drove away after I made that statement. And um, I guess, you know, I guess I was like, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. And it's not that I was not smart, but that one little lie kind of planted its roots deep and I had something to prove, I guess. And that lie really blossomed into something so big that, uh, I mean, when you hit LA, I mean, it was your looks that opened up the door immediately, right? Um, I, I think so. Uh, it was my looks, but I think it, honestly, I think they really were drawn to my naive, my naivete, like my innocence, um, my honesty, my Southern drawl, my, um, like, I feel like that's what they were drawn to, but they told me to immediately change, you know? And um, it was kind of like a constant challenge. Like for 36 years, I'm in this industry where uh, not only am I competing every day off of like how smart I am or how not smart I am, how beautiful, how thin, um, how available, how hot, how, you know, all of those things and the constant, um, not only competition, but rejection. So, you know, I'm being rejected more than I'm being accepted on a daily basis. But um, is that through auditions though? Yes. So you kind of have to get used to, to that feeling and, and not taking it personally. And you start to build this kind of like cage around your heart a little bit. And, when they say that Hollywood is sinister, it definitely has that side to it. Um, and when you don't know better and you're 17 and you don't have family and, and you know you just got off the boat basically from Louisiana, it was kind of like I was fresh for the picking, you know, kind of. And uh, not kind of, literally. Like um, I had a producer write a side note for one of my very first jobs that I got, which was a rock video for Great White. And out of all of the, the girls, he wrote on my picture, fresh in town, two weeks. And, and that's kind of what they went with. And um, I remember doing that video and they didn't tell me like what they were going to do. And in one of the scenes, the guy grabs my bum. And my natural reaction was like, what the heck? You know, like, to push, like that's what we wanted, you know, like that we wanted to get that natural reaction. And I was so offended. I was like, oh my goodness, you know? Uh, but you know, that's my first job in LA is a rock video. Well, when you got to LA, how naive were you to the whole world of Hollywood? Oh my goodness, incredibly, um, incredibly. Like I had no, I had no idea. Like I had no idea and, and you know, I'm being this young, trusting Southern girl and I'm with all these other girls who I think, you know, they're my friends and they're like me and, but they've been seasoned. So like there was a, a lot of um, opportunistic moments that I didn't foresee coming. So I got taken advantage of a lot and hurt a lot and trusted a lot more than I should have. Um, you know, came very close to hashtag me too, but I was also the kind of person that never wanted the part that bad, if that makes any sense. And I don't know. I mean, 
That is a very strange statement that you step off the plane in L.A. with a focus on being a star. Yeah. But then was it that you just didn't have the work ethic inside you at that time? Like I'd never had a, uh, a modeling job in my life. Um, I went from, you know, working the register at my stepdad's gym, you know, which was a given kind of like, oh, you know, I'm behind the gym here and just checking people in at a gym to Hollywood. And um, I really had this belief for so long that it wasn't who you knew or who you slept with. Like I really didn't, when someone told me that, I went, that's not true. That, that can't be true. I really didn't want, I didn't want to believe that. I really didn't. And then when many circumstances presented themselves um, in that way, I just remember going like, then I don't want the job. Like, I don't wanna, I don't wanna do the job. So uh, there were circumstances where they got to realize that about me and I became to be known as difficult to work with and or had a reputation for leaving or walking out or being aggressive. Like I had to kind of learn really fast this is not what I want. But so, so then my agents start, would start to lie to me about certain jobs. Um, so there were situations where I was flown out of the country for a, a job that wasn't actually a job that, you know, people might call sex trafficking now, stuff like that. Um, so in other words, the word meaning that you were difficult to work with was meaning that you just didn't put out right. to, Mr. Director or Mr. Producer. Um, right. And, and, and ladies and gentlemen, just to kind of make the speed, to kind of speed up the decades a bit on not just Bobby's story, but the life in Hollywood. So, Bobby, this was more towards what, mid-80s, upwards into the 90s. But ladies um, and gentlemen, this was going on as far back as the 1950s. 50s. If you do yeah. your research on Hollywood and you start doing research on the starlets back then, yeah. you'll realize that hashtag me too was yeah. going on. But a lot back then, a lot of women, Bobby, uh, thought that was the only way to make it to the top. Right. Right. And um, and when I was told in you know 1990 that that was also still the way, I was like, there's just, I just, it, it just can't, then I don't want it. Then I don't want it. So yeah. So my work ethic was difficult because there was a lot of uh, rebellion in me. And I just thought like, I'm not going to, I won't do the job. I won't work that job if that's what it takes. So I started to um, do drugs, which were readily passed out, produced all over the place literally handed over by an agent, you know, like if I had a modeling job on a weekend and I was like three pounds overweight, they would, it was nothing for them to hand over cocaine or, or meth to lose that weight because it's all about them making that money, you know? And to me, I thought, wow, I can like, you know, lose 10 pounds in three days. Oh my goodness. They didn't care about the fact that, oh, she might become addicted. It might be a problem for her life. That's not why I was even with the agency. It was for how much money I was making them. So you you were the product. 
You were the commodity. Right. You were the right. one that created them profit. Right. And if you don't play the game, then right. neither side makes money. That's right. So um, I struggled a lot uh, and became, um, over the years, a functioning addict. So um, it was very hard, uh, but it became just a way of life. And, and I went through many uh, heartbreaks, many times where, you know, I was pushed into the pit. I willingly went into the pit. I was drugged into the pit. Um, but it just became like business as usual, you know? Uh, and I feel like over 36 years, my heart hardened so, so severely because of all of these uh, traumatic experiences that like I would just numb more with drugs. Yeah, did you come, did you become more cynical? Yes. Um, I became arrogant, I became uh, more rebellious, I became, I thought that the more the, the more trauma that I went through or the more things that happened to me that were breaking my heart, that just meant I had to get up, and be stronger and meaner and harder and try to prove this person wrong and, and to make more money and to be more famous and not have to marry well or be dependent on a man. Um, that was kind of like my goal. Like I can make as much money as a man. I can be as famous. I can. So here I am in this world, just seeking, uh, love, you know, from a million likes or a million followers that absolutely just felt like nothing that just, just not to just, it's weird to have, like, to accomplish so many things in your career and like feel like you have nothing to show for it and like your heart feels smaller you know like it i just felt like it felt like nothing you know bobby when i when i went through and read your first book dirty rocker boys hmm. and you were very i mean in both books you you were very open transparent um it's like every page the reader is living you know living the life through your your words, your eyes. Yeah. And the whole time I kept thinking, because you talk about when you stepped off that plane in LA. And from that moment on, it was like this huge, fast-paced, rush lifestyle that went on and on and on. And the whole time I'm thinking, nobody, nobody looked out for you. Nobody held your hand. You were literally on your own and if there was a mistake to be made no one gave a crap right right and there was many mistakes made and uh and yeah no no one gave a crap <laughs> well you know what was life like okay so what was life like in hollywood before the cherry pie video hit MTV versus after it had aired. Wow. Um, well, the, the, I had previously done star search, which was airing weekly, which was kind of already really ramping up my, my, uh, 
my my profile to people because that was on weekly and um i won more times than anybody in any category on that show except for the final show like i didn't win the hundred thousand but i i won as many times like more times than anyone and that's where uh janie lane my ex-husband who was the singer of warrant saw me to do the cherry pie video and um he wanted me for the for the video and i just thought it was like another audition that i didn't feel like going to like oh not not another music video and i didn't know who they were and i had loved his song heaven was like number two on the pop charts and i was of course singing along with that in the car not even knowing who they were and i didn't go to the i didn't go to the audition and this wasn't the norm like the normally if you don't show up to an audition you're lost like you you just don't you don't make it but i didn't know that it was like a personal request and so normally if i didn't go to an audition i just didn't tell my agent i'd just be like whoops you know didn't make that one and um they called the next day and went like columbia records called you didn't you were a no-show yesterday and i was like what oh my goodness what what okay and they were like they want to see you right now. I'm like, right now, right now? They're like, yes. I'm like, oh my goodness. So I went to Jerry's Deli where he was having lunch with the director who was such a misogynist. I couldn't stand him. And uh, I was just like, oh, this is going to be awful. Right. I show up immediately. Janie Lane says, you have the job. Like, I don't even say two words. I take a fry off of his plate, which he loathed. Didn't know that. And, um, He's like, you're hired. And so we were shooting at the end of that week. And when they told me all of the ideas that they had for me, all the plans, I was like, nope, 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 nope. Again, they were like, oh, she's being difficult. But some of the things, I mean, that that video was so sexy and so sexist for that time. And I'm still innocently thinking like there's no, uh, that this isn't like a code word for something else. Like I literally thought, at my 19 year old self that it was a song about a piece of confection like a about about an actual cherry pie like dessert literally like i i honestly didn't connect the dots of like what it meant you were naive i was so naive i really was and when they were like, we're going to have you in a, in a pit of whipped cream naked. I was like, um, no, you're not <laughs> like that. That's not happening. That last scene where they shoot me with an actual fire hose was a one shot. It was a one time thing because it was so strong. My eyelids peel, peeled backwards, almost took my face off. I immediately turned away and I was like, that's hope you got that shot. Cause I'm not doing that again. Like, I'm still young, I'm still naive, but I'm also like, not, not gonna do that, I'm not doing that. But, but Canada wouldn't even play that video because of how sexy it was. But it, it stayed at number one on MTV and MTV was such a huge deal back then. Um, it was number one for like a year straight. And when the video came out, I was so surprised at how much I was in it, right? like. I had done a couple of other videos where, you know, it's just like a, a blurb there, a blurb there. When I, I saw the world premiere of the cherry pie video for Warren on MTV, I'm sitting in my apartment 
and I'm watching and I'm like going, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. I was so, it, I was flattered. It was crazy good. You know, I, I loved the song. They were so nice. Um, and, but I was just surprised of how much I was in it, like equally to the band. And I was like, wow, that was kind of cool. And then it just didn't go away. And then from that moment on, I was the cherry pie girl forever. Forever. And forever. Now, on, now on Star Search, what was your talent? Um, being able to read a teleprompter, looking cute. It was this, it was the um, spokesmodel category. What were you addicted to most, the drugs or men? Definitely the drugs, um, but definitely the <laughs> drugs. Um, the men, I will say that like, the, the men were different than what I was used to, um, especially the ones who are in the industry. And, um, but I will say that Janie was, probably the sweetest and he had a unbeknownst to him like even though he was a rock star he was still like a sweet down home ohio boy who had like chivalry and uh was polite and wasn't like a creepy pervert um that i was getting used to meeting on a regular basis you know the creepy pervert um he would he would you know he sent me flowers to the set he was respectful when I, he was the one when I was like, I'm not doing that or I'm not doing this. Uh, I don't want to do that. He was the one who was like, we're not doing this. You know, me and the, the director fought constantly because he was such an a-hole, like no offense, but like he literally showed up to my second book signing and walked up to the podium. This is so crazy. Like 30 years later and walks up to me and goes, hi, do you remember me? And I was like, should I like, you know, no. <laughs> I, he was like, I'm, I still don't even know his name because that's how much I didn't like him. And I, it's being videoed. And the guy goes, I was the director for cherry pie. And I was like, Oh my goodness, I hated you so much. And they reported that. And he, he was like, can I get the book signed? And I was like, wow, this is so weird. And then he just walked away and I was like, that was so weird. Gosh. But that was all I could remember about him was he was just like, such a jerk. But at the but at the uh, at the deli when you had the meeting with um, him and then Janie was there. Janie was really shy, wasn't he? He was very quiet. Very shy. Um very quiet. It was such it was two different totally personality types. It was like the director and Janie. And I was like he's he's annoying. Hi. I ate off of his plate and he was like, oh my goodness, like to himself. He told me about that later. Um, and I was just like, I used to call it fake it to make it, like put on this personality that seemingly didn't care whether I got the job or not, which obviously it looked like I probably didn't care since I didn't show up the day before anyway. <laughs> but um, he was just like, as soon as I walked up, he was like, you have the job you know, like so nice. And then the other guy was like, we're going to be doing this and this and this. And I was like, we'll see. Well, we'll see, you know, well, and we no, did. No, no, go ahead. No, we did see like he didn't get to do half the stuff he really wanted to do, but I was like, not going to do it. So. Well, it really didn't matter because the video was basically number one for a whole year. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Like, what was it like that every, no matter where you, I mean, let's, let's use Sunset Strip as an example. So after okay. the video comes out, it's the hottest thing on MTV. Yeah. You must, what, what, I mean, for you, you were the starlet. I mean, you could get into any club you wanted to just by walking up to the front door and a bouncer's like, go in. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And my ex-husband hated that about me too, by the way. He was like, that's rude. Um, but I was like, why would you wait if you don't have to? Like I started to get acclimated to feeling that way. And, and quite honestly, he, he was, he, he was about the fame too, but he was still deep down like a little boy inside. So it did a whole nother number on him. And, um, but yeah, like I would be driving down the street and people would be like honking their horns on sunset and like, I would look over and they'd be like, cherry pie, cherry pie. And I'm like, Hey, what's up? Yeah, it was, um, it was surreal. It was kind of, it was kind of crazy. Um, and that was not that what I did was talented. Uh, you know, it wasn't really talent, but back then this was before like reality TV or, you know, social networks and people were basically known for their talent or, their works, you know, or their yeah. beauty, you know, um, you know, it was, yeah, where they actually did something where they, I would say in a way that they would, where, where they earned the fame. Now right. you can manufacture your own fame. Yeah. There's, yeah, there was no such thing as like an influencer. There was a little bit of nepotism from that person or this person, but I didn't know who those people were. You know, um, well, back yeah. in those days, I mean, back in those days, how would you describe your mindset? I mean, did you have high self-confidence or was it hidden low self-esteem? It was an outward, uh, like I was nice to people. Like I didn't start to become more bitter or rude until much later because you became more accessible with social media. Right. Um, in the beginning, I was so grateful and, and I was like flattered. And when people came up to me and were like, oh, my goodness, I was flattered. But I never considered myself a celebrity. Like when somebody was said to me, you're a celebrity, I'd be like, no, I'm not. I'm just like everybody else. Like, I'm just like me and you. Like I would I would see a celebrity like uh, a famous actress from, you know, like the 40s or 50s one night. And I'd be like, oh, my goodness, that's cool. you know. But I always knew not to like go up to them and be like geeking out either. Like I had a sense of, I automatically had a sense of like, don't be a dork, try to be cool, try to be humble, try to be sweet. You know, of course, unless somebody came up to you and was a total, you know, uh, rude or said something nasty, which they often did. So I kind of like got this, um, this tough guy attitude. Like I kind of came, became like a really feminine boy. Like, you know what I mean? Like I felt like I had to be a boy. I, I like picked I, that, I picked that up in, in both books. Yeah. Like I felt like I had to kind of protect myself. I had to, um, and I also took that role on for my friends. Like I'll protect you. You know, um, I, I kind of did that for my, for my own life and childhood for my little brother. So like I kind of, and for my mom, you know, cause I grew up in an abusive household. So I saw a lot of stuff. 
um, that I didn't like, that I also didn't want to be on the receiving end of. So I felt like I am, um, even though I'd never been in an actual fist fight, my words, like if I got in a fight with you, you would be scared. You, you would be scared. From but what I've read, I would say that is true. Um, yeah. But, you know, even be, let's say before and even after the, the music video came out, you must have been relentlessly hit on by every guy down Sunset Strip and probably more so by all the rocker boys that were either going to be at the Whiskey A Go-Go, the Rainbow, or Viper Room, or what, or whatever, Troubadour. And uh, it, it yeah. was probably never ending. I mean, how in the world did you handle that? Um, I got to where I kind of didn't like men. Like, not that I liked women, because I didn't. Like that, not in a, in a, in a romantic way. Um, and, and I realized that early on uh, from situations. But I never, I never had same-sex attraction. Um, but I got to a point where I liked it. It became where I just really didn't trust more and more. And because no matter what, how they greeted me or how they came to me, if they approached me, it was always really whack. You know what I mean? It was always like way over the top, way gross. So I kind of got like this sense of humor that kind of covered this feeling of shame, right? So I feel like a lot of comedy comes from that. Um, so I kind of felt like I had, to, you know, had this had I had to lift the party up. I had to keep keep some sort of funniness about me or a sense of humor about this whole situation because nobody would believe this even if I wrote it. You know what I mean? Like nobody would believe the day in and day out, the twenty four seven of that lifestyle. Yeah, but when I think you are the only one that's ever written a book that was so open. Um, with the first book, I was yeah. sitting there thinking, were these, were you the notch on their belt or did the table turn to where they ended up being the notch on your belt? I have a belt. Like my <laughs> belt. I didn't have a belt. Like there was no belt for me to have a notch on. Like I was never pursuing anybody. Like I never set out to pursue anybody. Um, so then that's how people got this. So they pursued me. And if it happened to have worked out and they were in the rock industry, then, you know, people were calling me a groupie, but I was like, I wasn't trying to date that guy. Like, and, and I wasn't, it, they just, they kind of were pursuing me. Like when I dated Matthew, he showed up to the star search set and asked to be introduced when, you know, when I met Janie, it was because he saw me on star search and asked to be introduced. Um, you know, when I met Tommy, it was because he was on tour with Janie and saw his wife and saw me on star search and knew that I was available and asked to be introduced. You know, it was kind of like that. Like I, I never set my sights on anyone. And if somebody famous came on to me, it was like an, it was like a knee jerking reaction to almost, almost be like sassy and like disinterested and almost going over the top to like embarrass them to make them not like me. Like, I know that sounds crazy, but 
No, no, no. I get it. I get it. I mean, for you though, I mean, was it uh, how for you? I mean, you are plastered all over MTV every day, all day. You know, we know. You know, when MTV used to play music videos, you know, we knew how heavy the rotation could be. Right. For you, how did you? Did you? Were you able to tell the difference between when a guy liked you? For you and not the persona? No. No. Is it- um, it, it wouldn't be until... So when I would act that way, it was usually a way to... Uh, it was like a way of protecting myself. Like, I'm going to ruin this right now. Like, right up front. I'm going to just be so crazy or so disturbing or... You know, like the Kevin Costner story. Perfect example. Um, as soon as I saw that they were interested in me on a level that made me feel uncomfortable, I would turn into that person that like, I'm going to be so rambunctious and I'm going to be so rude and, you know, just so disinterested. And, and also I was also very high. I was on drugs, like trying to cope. So my interactions with people weren't always lucid or on point, but it still had that same goal, which was to totally repulse them. And, keep me safe. I felt like, like, keep me safe. Uh, I thought like, if I'm, if I'm going to be this person, they're definitely not going to try and bed me, you know, or, or, you know, gosh, I mean, I watched the Playboy secret series and had chills the whole time because I was like, right there, right there at that party, that doctor was like, really trying to bring me in. And I just sat there in the bed and went, thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. Okay, hold up, hold up. Let me okay. Then let me ask you this, Bobby, because that means within the first book, maybe the second. We'll just stick with the first one at the moment. Okay. That means there's more stories that oh, you've yeah. never told. Oh man, yes. There's there's a whole nother book of stories. I've another never encyclopedia. Told. <laughs> Pretty much, like I I probably there's so many there's so much stuff I didn't put in the book because of fear really like i'm like i don't know how much power this person has like they might come out okay now i know that you told one story where uh one particular person was not happy being mentioned in the book and there is a lot of people mentioned in the first book was the book the first one was it written out of revenge uh I wouldn't say revenge. It was more like so many rock books had come out. Like I think I had been mentioned in like at this point in my career in 16 different rock books that I was aware of. Who knows how many more there were. And um, when somebody would say, oh, I read about you in this book or I read about, about you in that book. And then I would read about it and I'd be like, that didn't happen. Or it wasn't like at all. Or that was distasteful or that was rude or I don't remember it that way at all. And I thought to myself, wow, this story really needs to be told from the female perspective, but from a self-deprecating stance of honesty. And, uh, you know, I felt like when I read those books that those people were writing stories that made them look a certain way, you know, that, you know, they thought that people would think that was cool or I don't know. I know I wanted to write a book where I was like, definitely honest about myself. Um, 
and honest to a point with some of the stories and definitely not all the stories to where I wasn't a going to be murdered, <laughs> be sued. Um, and basically those were the two important parts, but they wanted it very salacious. There was a lot of it that I was like, I don't know if I, you know, want to write about that. Like, and when I got to the end of the book, I read it and then talked to Simon and Schuster. There's a last page that I write. There's like a, Hey guys, thanks for letting me get that off my chest type of thing. The, the attorney called me from Simon Schuster and I said, well, what do you think? And he goes, it's really sad. It's really, it made me really sad. What, like the whole was, book. Yeah. And I was like, whoa, well, I wasn't trying to make people like, I don't want that be the response for people to come away from have, having read my story. Um, wow. I was surprised that he said that. And I felt like I needed to write that last page. So I did. Um, because you know, I'm sitting there telling my stories thinking like, well, that that's my story and that happened. And yeah, that sounds crazy. And, but did this you was, think it was going to come across as cool? To him? No, you. Um, the book? Yeah. I, I, was, I was just being honest. And I literally had only gone through it with a fine tooth comb and been like, that was the wrong timing or that didn't happen that way. Or I said this exactly like that. Like I was so invested in every word of that book. Um, and also was like trying not to, you know, trying not to be too revealing because I didn't want to you know, put somebody's trauma out there either. There's a lot of stuff I didn't put in the book. And, um, but I, I wanted it to just be as real as possible and not be like one of those rock books that just sounded well, like. Well, it, it's definitely not one of the rock books. And right? I wouldn't have called the book sad. Um, oh, okay. Of course, I look at things because I have to read so much yeah. and I have to listen to so much music. And I have to watch so many movie screeners. Yeah. I have to look at things completely different. But when it's a true life story like this one, I yeah. didn't look at it as sad. Because there were things in the book that you wrote and you wrote about that when you left Baton Rouge and you went to L.A., right then and there, I knew you knew nothing of the world to come. Right. So as the as as your story unfolded unfolded in the book Dirty Rocker Boys, and some you would be telling a story that would literally like make your mouth gap open and hit the floor. Uh, like I joked to you before our interview, I actually felt like I needed to take a bath after I read that book. But I knew through every chapter, I'm like. Bobby didn't know any better. And, and if you don't know any better, you can't fault the person if they've never learned or if they never had the opportunity to learn. I cannot, right. ladies and gentlemen, uh, if you ever read the first book, um, you have to understand that the life in Hollywood at that time was on fat. I mean, it was literally on speed. Literally. Never stopped and never slowed down. And I can't imagine anybody be able, able to have their faculty straight 
I think yeah. everybody on the Sunset Strip, I should say, uh, I shouldn't say Sunset Strip. Everybody in the world of rock at that time, it was a never-ending party for a good decade. Are you haunted by the ghost of your rock and roll past? You know, uh, sometimes in my nightmares, like sometimes uh, I do have nightmares about stuff that I thought that I'd long since recovered from. And um, I, I always like to think that I, you know, I had kicked its butt and I was so strong and none of that stuff can touch me. And uh, I thought I had, you know, had my full share of those kinds of people, the, the kind of environments, the party style, the, the rock life, the drug life, just all of it. I thought I had lived it so much that nothing could kind of touch me. You know, like, I'm like, I've met every kind of person, every kind of situation, I've done it all. And it was kind of like a, a badge of honor, but it was really like a box, you know? Um, it was just, it was just a front. It was just that faking it to make it thing again. And so when you asked me if um, I knew the difference between like, if a guy was genuinely into me for me or not, I never did because, and it would always come at that point where I'm like making breakfast and putting toothpaste on their toothbrush. And they're like, whoa, gross. What is this? Um, you know, like that, what it, it was always kind of like, so such a pivot that that's what, that's what it was. It's like, they're not looking for the, for the, the me, the inside, the person that's behind that picture and that girl in the video, they just wanted her. And there was a whole like loving, tender side to me that my daughter says like, you're a catch. Like anybody would be, you'd be the greatest wife ever. And maybe now, and, but you know, not in, probably not until now. <laughs> Which, <laughs> that because there was that side to me that nurturing well i saw that i saw that in the first book i saw it in the second book oh. and that's what i started realizing did these men ever look past the cherry pie girl and i don't think 99 oh. of them ever did But then we go into the second book, Cherry on Top, and you got into stand-up comedy. I mean, it was like you walked across the rocker side of Sunset Strip to the comedy side of the street. I mean, was comedy the outlet that gave you a voice? No. <laughs> um, really? I thought it would be. Like, I thought it would be. I literally thought, because people always told me how funny I was. But remember how I reminded you earlier, that was like to cover like all this stuff, like that I was, you know, the shame and all the stuff that I experienced that I would always just flip it into like this joke and pull it off. Right. Because I didn't want to feel the stuff that was uh, that I was, you know, trying to cover up. I didn't want to feel at all. Actually, I didn't want to feel anything. And that's where the drugs came in. Um, but and in the comedy world, it's super welcomed like that's also a backstage area that 
is very conducive to a lot of drug taking and alcoholism. But um, after all of that off the rock stuff and dating and then not trusting and then not knowing, you know, I did the reality show and I wrote a second book. And at this point in time in my life, my entire world was the fact that my brother lived down the street, married to this wonderful person who just had my nephew. And my daughter was living in Louisiana. She's already in her mid twenties. And this is now the center of my joy, right? And I go see them every single day. And at this point in my life, I'm like, just just going through the motion, but you know, doing this interview and doing this book and everything was going smoothly. And then my brother took me to lunch one day, which was super weird. He was like, why don't you come downtown and we're gonna have lunch today? And I'm like, okay, sure. Should have saw that coming. That's when he told me they were moving away. And I was like, dun, dun, dun. You know, like I just thought to myself, I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die. Like I'm You gonna lost die. your stability. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, the one thing that like lit up my face and, you know, warmed my heart every single day that I looked forward to seeing my brother and his baby and his wife, um, like nothing else, all the troubles just kind of like disappeared when I would go there, you know, I was like, yeah, okay, well the relationship sucks, but I, it doesn't matter. I, I don't care. I, I have my brother and my nephew and uh, my sister-in-law and this is, they're so great. And, and the, I also got to see like a family life that I didn't knew existed. Like I saw their little family unit and I went like, wow, this is possible. Right? Like, this is amazing. Like I just dove into like watching how much love a family could have and how much they could dote on their child. And like, it, and I see it reveal itself in this child in beautiful ways that I was just like, you know, a bird on the wall, like in awe and so excited and was just like, there's hope in the world. Oh my goodness. This is so beautiful. And then he said they were moving and I was like, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Like I really thought I was going to die. And I just cried and cried and cried and thought and did more drugs and cried and did more drugs. And like, I was such a mess that they like, didn't even say goodbye to me at their point. Cause I just couldn't contain my emotions and they didn't want to scare Oliver, my nephew. And that destroyed me that I didn't get to say goodbye. And oh my goodness. And I just thought, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I'm either going to overdose or I need to find something else. And I thought comedy, people say I'm funny. I auditioned for the groundlings and got in in my 20s and I, a rock boyfriend told me I wasn't funny so I quit. Maybe this is what I need to go back to and maybe this is really what, you know, what I'm good at. Maybe this is what I was supposed to do. Well, back up for a second because I know the story because I read both books yeah. about when the particular rocker guy said yeah. you weren't funny. Right. When I When I read that, I was like... Why did you listen to him? And was he jealous over something? I would say that every person I've ever been intimate with or dated and like in a relationship setting was jealous, horribly jealous. Why? Like because you were the cherry pie girl? Honestly, I don't know. <laughs> Never knew why they were 
like I believe that they were liking me for me. And as soon as I got in with them, all the things that were great about me is what they wanted to change. Right. So, um, and that was, that was, that happened always, which I never understood. You know, I was just like, wait a minute, this is weird. Um, okay. Well, wait a minute. Let, let, let's do a therapy session here. Um, now you're, you're wiser. Oh, yeah. Um, when you look back and let's just, let's just pick the relationships and I'm not mentioning any names. If you want to know yep. people, read the books. By looking back at all the relationships, do you see a pattern that you yourself always fell into? Oh yeah. Um, I would say it was, it didn't even dawn on me until in my worst relationship ever, the, the worst one my mom said to me, I called her crying. She said, you're dating your dad. I just was like, yeah, I just started because it had never dawned on me. Like none of that. When people were like, oh, people have daddy issues and mama issues. I never knew what they meant by that. Like, again, me being naive still up until my forties, like, you know, there's still a part of me that's naive too, even still, because I want to see the good in people. I want to believe that you can overcome that or that, or that, or that truth, or that lie. Like I was still always trying to figure out, figure out what was the lie, what was the truth and what was the lie. And, it, and in LA, I would say that I never walked away from that town going, I know the truth, right? It's all make-believe. Yeah. And it's all lies. Yeah. And my, my entire, you know, identity, self-worth, uh, how I identified myself or my accomplishments, my failures, my successes, the narrative of that was a lie and, and been, had been lied to, disappointed, disappointed myself. Um, didn't the lines were so blurred. Is it me or is it them? Is it me? Is it them? Was it, was, was I an eager participant in part of this? Yeah, sometimes, but not always, mostly not. Like it was a constant, it was constant. It was like, it was, it was like this trauma bond that was like forming its own hell. Well, in you both know? books, yeah, I could see the pattern. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, because as each page is turned, there is a pattern that emerges. And you know, when I hear people say, oh, uh, uh, especially if, if a woman uh, meets a guy and somebody goes, they're just like your dad. Now, that statement is either good or bad. And right. through a lot of, there's a, there's a lot of research out there that with daughters, they will, they can gravitate, most likely gravitate to a man that shows qualities in which they grew up with under their father. It's, it's common a hundred percent of the time. Right. And I, I found that not only was I attracting those similarities of my father in men, but also in friends, like 
my best friend was an alcoholic, you know, whether it was a female or a male. Um, I found that I was always doing being the protector in some sort of a position. And I was also this female who had this kind of like male attitude who had, you know, the success and the, the titles and the, the chops that I got on my own. Like I did that myself, you know, not with your help or with your help or married well or whatever. Like I always felt like, you know, I wanted to prove that I could do it as a female, you know? And it kind of got me in a, like, I don't need anybody position because anytime I would let anybody in just a little bit, it turned into this whole vacuum of abuse and lies. And I came to learn that like a person will tell you exactly who they are the first 15 minutes that you talk to them, they'll reveal a little something about themselves without being provoked. And I looked back on all the relationships and I remember these conversations and one in particular, every time they would do it, I would say, Oh, stop. Oh no, that you're not like that. Or you're not going to do that. Or one time a person said, I'm going to disappoint you. I'm going to let you down. I was like, why would you do that? Like, here I am still again, just going like, why, why would anyone be that way? Just, just so, trusting i would say i'm also like kind of an empath too like i feel other people's feelings um but i also you know i had to have the strength you know i didn't let myself cry until my dad died and that forever and when he died like i don't think i ever stopped crying <laughs> you know well, like you know one of the things that i picked up especially on the the, the whole string of relationships yeah. Part of it was not your fault. To and what I'm about to say meaning that there was a a lot of these boyfriends really got jealous. And I'm yeah. like but in that setting I can see why. Yeah. You were the most hottest thing on MTV. They had you on their arm, but they because of their own insecurity, they never felt, I guess, completely safe that you weren't going to be taken away. And the other odd thing, which I really, that I think shocked me more than anything in the book was you were a loyal girlfriend. Yeah. And in that, in that environment, yeah. I was stunned that you were. You know, I was just telling my daughter this the other day. Like, I, in my mind, I literally believed that they would never cheat on me. Like, I thought, I always thought that whatever I put out would be received and it would be a mutual, it would be mutual. Um, or that if I was forthcoming with the truth, like, um, like, don't waste my time. Like, if you want to be a player, like, don't be with me. Like, I want to be in a relationship. I, I want to be in love. I want to, you know, I want to do the right thing. I don't like cheaters. I've been cheated on by every single person I've ever been with. And 
not that it's, you know, a character flaw. It was like I was saying, it's business as usual for a rock star. And that's what I was looking at it on, on that end was, I don't think there was ever a rock star that's ever been faithful in, in their entire life. And, uh, and there's, there's still books to be written from all of, all of those on, on that side of things. And for you to be, to you to be faithful, I was, I was stunned. I, I, I mean, the whole rocker boy lifestyle, you should have known that after every concert, there's a line of groupies waiting. Right. But I really thought I was the, the exception to the rule. I really did. I thought, because I'm not a cheater and I love and I'm I'm honest and they they lack for nothing in this relationship with me. How could you know? I felt like confident in my beauty and my skills and my you know my being the female in the relationship. Like there wasn't a part of me that I thought that I was bad at or that I that someone would betray me in that way. Like I literally never believed that that was going to happen. And a friend of mine told me that an ex-boyfriend said, don't you know, because this was the first time that somebody had treated me so, so poorly and I stayed and I knew I had to leave, but I just couldn't believe it. It was, it was just the harshest rejection, but it was kind of like a, a Stockholm syndrome way. And I, nobody's ever, like I had never had that kind of rejection, like deliberate, intentional, daily rejection. And that was the relationship I stayed in the longest, trying to prove myself. And I remember a friend of mine telling me that the boyfriend, and I won't mention his name either, um, said, how did you even get a girl like her? Like, how did you even, how did you even, how did that even happen? And he said, I don't, I'm not gonna curse, but he said, you want to keep a hot girl, get a hot, a hot girl like her and keep her. You treat her like crap. And I was like, wow. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, wow, that's disgusting. That's, that's horrible. But like, that's literally what he was doing and it was working, which was a shock to me again, still being naive and trusting. But, um, I don't think that I, even now, so many years later, it's been like seven years since I've been on a date, touched another man, kissed anyone, because I decided after the last boyfriend and the last amount of abuse that I took that I just went, I, my, I pick poorly. If I'm attracted to somebody, that should be a red flag. Like, just, just, just put it out there. And then I just said, I'm not going to pick anymore. Like, I'm there, that wasn't going to be a priority. I was going to focus on me. And I wasn't going to date because I just didn't choose wisely. And I always ended up getting so crushed and so taken advantage of and so defeated. And I felt used and abused uh, physically, mentally, emotionally, financially, in every capacity. What did you self-sabotage? Or what was the things that you used to self-sabotage your own career? Was it just not showing up? My fear being uh, not showing up, being a drug addict, um, prioritizing relationships over finances or success or career. Um, and those, anytime 
uh, my manager, anytime I got into a relationship, she would kick the wall and be like, okay, well, I guess this is going to be a hiatus for however long this relationship plays out because I would always prioritize trying to be in love with someone or a relationship over any, anything in my career. So that was a bummer for her anytime I was in a relationship. Um, and I would, I would totally do that and listen to the lies and then get caught up in the whole thing. And so then I decided that I just wasn't going to be in a relationship anymore. Like I'm going to, I'm not going to do it. And it's all kind of worked out perfectly. I've decided that I'd, ra I'd rather be alone than be unequally yoked with anyone. Now, right after your second book, Cherry on Top, came out, yeah. I actually tried to get a TV interview with you then. Now, yeah. I actually went back and looked it up, and the mm -hmm. date was March 1st, 2019. But you ended up in a harrowing three-year ordeal, being traumatized and swindled by an identity, an identity thief and gun-toting yeah. cyber-stalker can you elaborate on that story? Yeah. So I, I moved back to Baton Rouge, um, super confident, like nobody can, nobody can phase me. Like I've, I've experienced it all. Like, you know, moved back to Louisiana, completely disarmed and, uh, right at the beginning of COVID. And, um, this person who had been following me on socials, and most of the time when you're friends with people on socials, you don't know who they are. You just accepted their friendship because you're being kind or whatever, or wanting to have, you know, however many followers or likes or whatever. And apparently this person had been a fan of mine for years and followed me on socials and knew everything about me, like everything and heard I was back in town. And obviously I was posting about it. Like I'm back in town. Like, you know, like everybody does on socials and just being like so forthcoming with every detail of my life um which in the entertainment industry really enforced like when social media came about i was like nobody cares about what i had for breakfast and they were like oh they do post that croissant i was like why you know like i just thought it was so creepy and weird and then i got this tv show and they're like you need to be on top of your socials like it's and then it became an imperative part of getting a job in Hollywood. If you didn't have so many followers, you weren't even considered for a job in Hollywood, which became it's a new Still happens yeah. today. Yeah, which was so weird. And I, I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, so it was imposed upon you. If you're in the entertainment industry, you have to keep up with your socials. And I was like, God, this is so tedious. Anyway, so cut to, I'm back in Louisiana give up my career or come back here and this person has a pretend magazine at the time called louisiana women in business and i had an idea that i wanted to open an agency in town but a trusting agent like your friend tanya like to where i could help these kids navigate like whatever they may be going into here from somebody who's been seasoned who had the connections still who they could trust. And um, the first interview I do is with this person who I will call a stalker, um, who didn't have a 
who I totally trusted. I was like, sure, I'll do an interview, no problem, right? Invite them into my own home. This person in this moment goes home and, and proceeds to steal my identity. Mind you, I don't find out about it. Like things don't start revealing itself for a couple, like a month and a half. Like things start getting weird on my computer. Uh, login, like logins were changed. I'm looking, I'm on my own computer going like, this is something's weird. Like, like somebody else is using my mouse and it sounded crazy to people I'm telling. Right. I'm like, this is, there's something going There's, there's programs for that. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. And, uh, spyware and yeah. And, and here I am thinking like that, that didn't even cross. Right. So they installed all this while they were there. Yes. Yes. I was later able to prove I had to hire a hacker to prove what kind of spyware it was when it was installed, when it was activated, how it, how it worked because the police department were like, why would somebody want to do that to you? They thought. Especially in Louisiana. Yeah. They thought I was some crazy person writing a movie. We don't have stalkers here. Like what? You know? Well, you dropped off the planet. I did. Because this person became me online. And I didn't even pick up on it for like a month and a half. And I was leaving to go to California to go do a, a, do something. And this person, I guess, I eventually I find out that this person shows up at my house at three o'clock in the morning. I have a flight at like nine in the morning to California. And from us, I'm not knowing that this person is like a stalker, but that day I had called her over for a meeting because the person who gave me the interview was like, let me help you. Let me help you set up your idea for your business. I want to be your partner. I'll be your investor. Put on this, this air. Like I know people here because I have this magazine. I have all this money. Um, even said, I prayed last night and, um, I'm going to bring you closer to God. Well, guess what? That wasn't a lie, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that her intention wasn't to bring me closer to God through the loaded 38 that she had that night. Uh, if that's what, how she meant it, because, um, in her mind, I remember in her mind, she thought like I was leaving her and I had to talk with her that day, like with a list of questions. I'm like, why do you want to help me? Where's, where's the proof of this? She's deranged. Yes. And she thought that I was leaving and like, I was leaving her. So she showed up at three in the morning and said some weird stuff to me. And I was like, what? And I was like, get out. Like I kicked her out. And she was deeply infatuated with all of you. Literally told me that I was supposed to be her husband. What? Like, wait, what? <laughs> okay. What? <laughs> wait, what? Um, you wish like what? I'm the guy like what? But there it is. So, but it was, I would always be like, I'm not into women. You know, I would always blow it off. Just like I was doing men, women all the time, just like, but never took it in a way that I should be afraid. And except for this, 
one day I came to my mom's house and I said, something's telling me I should be afraid of her. And I don't feel afraid of people. Like Did I you ever get a restraining order? They gave me a stay away order because she didn't pull the weapon. So they destroyed the weapon. I got to stay away, which just means like, keep away from here, which doesn't really mean anything to anybody here. And I, all of all those streams of royalties and everything I'd worked so hard for to acquire alone as a female in the entertainment industry was stolen. Every royalty from every book, every royal in every capacity, Bobby Brown was hijacked. And even my unemployment, <clears throat> my unemployment during COVID. And I could not wrap my head around it. Like I couldn't log in. I could, I was just like all of this stuff. And then her showing up with the gun. And I really think like I kick her out, she goes out and then she starts to try to talk me into finding a set of keys that she had on her person because after I kicked her out and she follows behind me, she had set a loaded 38 on the kitchen table and closed the door. And I had opened my garage door and she was on the other side of my vehicle and I was on the one side and I had gotten the clicker out to open the garage. And she's trying to talk me into going back inside to help find these keys. And because she left the gun inside. Right. So, but I didn't know about the gun yet. And I Cause you never I, saw it. No, no. And she was just acting so crazy. I just, she was like, I just had to pee. And I was like, are you kidding? It's three in the morning. Like it was just such a weird, her energy was so scary. And I saw my dog like sh shaking and I thought, did she punch her? Is she having a seizure? Like my dog was so fearful of whatever it was she was sensing. And then when she said something that was really off, I went, N you need to get out. You need to get out. I kicked her out. I look behind me. She's not there. I'm like, hello. That's what she was doing. She was taking the gun out, putting it on the kitchen table, closing the door, walks on the other side of my vehicle, and then tries to talk me back inside. I open the garage door. She's trying to debate with me. Like, I'm pretty, you know, I'll leave right away. I just can't find my car keys. Like this whole thing. It's 4 a.m. And a neighbor whom I, whom I never met that I had heard jogs because I hadn't lived there very long jogs early in the morning passes. And I call her angel Anne because in this pivotal moment, this jogger passes and changes the trajectory of where this conversation is going. And as soon as I see this neighbor, I go, Oh, hi. Like, you know, because we're having this heated argument in a garage at 4 a.m. Right. And as soon as I do the pleasantries, like, Oh, I heard you jog. Like, hi, I'm the new neighbor. Nice to meet you. The girl says to me, so the keys. And I go, no, click. I'm closing the garage. She has to run out, closes the garage. And I go into the kitchen and I see the gun. What in the world went through your mind? I freaked out. Did you I call the police? It. No, no, because this is a gun toting state. Everybody can carry a weapon. I don't, I've never held a weapon that wasn't fake for TV. I don't like guns. I've never shot a gun. Um, I'm hate violence. You know, uh, I see what looks like a toy 
on my kitchen table, but I'm blown away. I'm blown away. I'm looking at it. I touch it. It's heavy and I'm start to shake. I just take my phone and take like a million pictures of it without, I'm like, what if I touch it and it goes off? Like, I didn't know what to do. I get in my car. I leave the gun on the table. I don't touch it. I call her right away and I go, I'm freaking out. She goes, do you want me to come back and get it? I'm like, F no. Right. Like hang the phone up. I go, I call my mom. I'm like, I know it's really early. I'm coming to your house right now. Something bizarre has happened and I don't know what to make of it. I'm coming over. And I I went to my mom's house. I'm so sweaty right now. I'm so sorry. That's all right. I go to my mom's house and I don't know what to, what, I don't know what to think, what to do, what's going on. I have to catch a plane in two hours. And who's going to believe you? Right. And um, then I see that immediately after this thing is happening, she's in my phone. Right. This is where I noticed that she's in my phone because all of my texts are being bookmarked. And on the drive to my mom's house, my car is connected via Bluetooth and it says, Text received, Bobby replied. I pulled over. I'm not even touching my phone. I'm like, what is going on? Like, that's when I kind of started to know, whoa, what? Did she, did she switch Sims cards? Something, something. Like there was one day where she was like, your, oh, your phone looks like it's dying. Let me plug it in and charge it for you. I'm not a criminal. Like I said, I'm like, Oh yeah, great. Thank you. You know, um, she was bookmarking all of my text messages and, and had at this point was me had control of my phone and did a, um, a thing where it says your device is lost and you're going to delete it and turn it off. And I'm watching it happen in real time. And I'm showing it to my mom who has no idea about technology or my stepdad. And they're like, what? And I'm like, she's turning my phone off. She's answering my text messages. They're like, can that even happen? Like, this is, you know, my, my parents who like don't even know how to use the remote, you know? And and you have a contact list that technically is a who's who. Right. Right. So, and then I'm catching a plane in two hours to have to go film a sizzle for a new TV show. And I'm a mess. I'm like, what? You know, and, and this is when she sends me the text. We were supposed to get married, blah, blah, blah. And I'm on the plane going, you are effing crazy. What the da, da, da. She turns my phone off. I get to California. I don't have a phone. I can't contact my people. Like, it's just like a whole thing. So she turned it off from her end. That's right. Oh my gosh. I am spiraling out. My credit card's not working. My accounts are depleted. Um, it was a crazy, it was so crazy. Um, but then the so, rest of the time, you're trying to get your, you're trying to get your identity back. For three years. Was the person ever arrested? No. Never arrested. Um, I gave all of my devices to the police department. After a year, like I said, I paid hackers. My mom helped me pay hackers. Um, like I was trying to, I was basically doing the job, doing their job. Like the forensics department here was like, you need to be put on a 5150. You sound crazy. Like they wanted to put me on a mental hold. And uh, a psychiatrist who's in prison at the current moment 
prescribed me all these medications. I end up having a seizure, shaving my head, having a, a mental crisis, a, a breakdown of sorts, huge sorts. Like I felt, I felt paralyzed for so long because I couldn't access my life's work, its worth or money or like I had to fly back to California to prove that I was me with my birth certificate because she also collected my unemployment. So I was making no money as myself, couldn't prove myself as myself. So then I got, and then when the police department after a year didn't do anything, didn't arrest her, said I was crazy and that that wasn't possible. Like that's not even possible. I was like, are you guys so far behind? Well, like, when did the breakthrough come? The breakthrough of the ordeal of, of you getting everything back. Oh, wow. Okay. So the breakthrough, I had to have a serious breakdown. Like I wasn't showering. I was Whoa, back up first breakthrough, meaning how did you get your identity back um it didn't happen until like no matter what i did physically as a human try wasn't happening it wasn't happening and i guess it wasn't supposed to be happening like no matter what i did it just was not happening and so no matter what I, what money I threw at it, no time I gave it, authorities I contacted, whether it was the FBI, the identity theft, the police department, California, unemployment, like it was so, it was so many ways of me trying, you know, proving how they did it, giving it to the police department, then them getting pissed off that I was doing their job or telling them that they didn't know how to do their job, basically that they wanted to say that I was crazy. Then I had this, uh, I'm on all these medications, which I feel like made things way worse because these were all medications that the side effects were seizures or death, which I didn't compute until I had a seizure. <clears throat> and, um, and I shaved my head during said seizure, but I had a, I had a spiritual moment during this, I'll call it a near death experience was my first spiritual experience where my dad came to me and talked to me and a, a past uncle came to me. My dad has passed where my ex-husband came to me and I'm crying hysterically. Like I, I can't kind of come to, so I'm out of it. And these, these previous people who have passed who love me came to me where I'm, I'd had a seizure. I guess I was a near death experience. I came to my mouth is bleeding and half my head is shaved off. And I'm like, I'm sitting on the ground naked and I'm remembering all these experiences. I thought they were so weird. And I looked in the mirror and I just went, what in the world just happened? I called my mom. I'm like, well, I shaved my head. You know, <laughs> like, I think I had a seizure. My mouth is bleeding. It's very painful. There's bite marks. Like, no, you didn't have a seizure. 
you didn't like none of that happened that sounds great all of that all of the stuff just every, i just remember my stepdad going like are you writing a movie are you writing a movie I'm like no this is really happening to me you know and then i remember my mom saying to me like there were days where i would just cry and cry and people were getting to the point where they would just ignore me crying because they didn't know how to how to answer me or soothe me they've seen how hard i tried to to you know come did they through. did they believe the ordeal or did they think you were crazy no they believed the ordeal they just didn't know how to help me and nobody else in town knew how to help me except for medicate me and that almost killed me and so then i remember my mom saying to me if you don't snap out of this you know you're never going to see your nephews by this time i have a new nephew and I just remember saying, well, that's never going to happen. <laughs> that's never going to happen. I immediately started calling EMDR therapists. It's eye movement repetition um, therapy. Where So it's for post-traumatic stress disorder um, and child post-traumatic stress disorder patients and they tested this out with um war vets first and it's a kind of therapy it's a talking therapy that eventually once you kind of un unlock all of the stuff through through conversation they start to put nodes in your hands that have vibration sound and then you follow a light all at the same time and it sounded bizarre but i was like i'm gonna see my nephews right i'm gonna see my nephews i'm gonna get through this and um the first per one of the first person i called every emdr therapist in town i saw that the recovery rate for people with uh that had done this therapy was tremendous and it was really helping people um i thought i have to do something like because a year had gone on of this um, and uh, two years. And now it was, it was going on too long. And then when my mom said that to me, I went, that's not going to happen. Like, this isn't going to be the narrative for me. This is not going to be the narrative. Nobody's been able to help me. So I'm going to help. I'm going to do whatever I can to help myself at this point. And I go into this, these intensives. I said, I want the intensives. I didn't know what they were. I didn't know how they were going to affect me, but I said, I want the, the intensives. And they were like, okay, well, hold on. We've got to pump the brakes. We got to, we got to go slow and see if this is right for you because you can kind of overdo it and then never come back from that. And I was like, I'm, I'm ready. I'm, I'm good for this. So I did it. And I was, I, I literally, I felt like I took this, this heart, this hardened heart that was in this box in this cage behind all these you know roots of 36 years of like my life and went in there with just that one story from the ptsd of the identity theft and the therapist was like whoa hold on wait a minute this is so much more than this just this this event like hold on i think there's way more that we have to unpack here you don't only have PTSD, you have CPTSD. 
And then she also informed me that I had DID, that there was moments in my childhood that I had disassociated and tucked away and then kind of coped through drugs, right? So, and I believed that those things were possible for other people. I had seen documentaries and I was like, I believe that that's possible. Like, it wasn't like, that's crazy. I really, you know, and so then I had therapy sessions, intensives where she was like, you're freaking me out. I was like, whoa, I don't know if I should be freaking you out. Like, if I'm freaking you out, then maybe we should stop this, you know, because, you know, if I'm scaring you, then, but, but she's the only person in my whole life that I've ever unfolded every single thing that's ever happened to me from beginning to end in detail and specifics and such graphic specifics that I can see now in retrospect, looking at that, like how that can scare someone, you know, she's like, well, hold on. Like, this is a like, hold on. And so I was like, well, okay, well we can stop. And this is where, so you asked me to do this interview and it said finding Christ. And then when you sent me that, I went, wow, this is going to be so great because he found me. I, I only got access back to all my socials like two months ago. When I finally responded to you is when I finally got access back to Bobby Brown's account. You know, I still have copy. Really? From 2019. Because I said, because I, you know, I introduced myself and wanted to do a TV, wanted to, to do a TV interview with you. Yeah. And I get a one word answer back. Ah. That says uh, awesome or something. And then I I said great. And then it came back as uh, agreed. And then it was just like crickets. Ghost town. Yeah. So that wasn't me. And um, like I said, I just got back into my socials a couple months ago. How did you get them back? So, so crazy. Like the original hacker that I hired three years ago who could who couldn't get me back in, like was able to get me back in. It was so, I was locked out. And then you were able to change all your passwords. Right. But I literally stopped using the internet. I stopped using the internet. I was afraid of it. I. Well, yeah, because I remember after that point in 2019, you were a ghost. Yeah. I stopped. Even the stalker wasn't using your accounts right i guess so which is a great which is a which was a good thing yeah it was um so how so how did you so so you just got these back a few months ago yeah yes but a, a lot of things had to happen i think before uh a lot of things had to happen before i had access back to my stuff again and a lot of stuff did happen um i I started to go to this emdr therapist and i had an intensive and this is where you you i get back into my accounts and you message me and then i respond and like i said you're the first dm i replied to in like almost three years (laughs) actually because when i finally got in i would see that i had like you have 48,983 DMs. And I'd be like, nope, 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 nope. 
couldn't do it. Just, it would just like be, I'd be like, I just can't, you know, it's a lot to catch up on. Or I'd start seeing some stuff that I missed or. Well, after three years, it doesn't matter. Yeah. So I just was like, and then I responded to your message, but we talked a little bit and you said you were following my story and that you really liked seeing my new feed, which was very faith-based, which is so totally 180 degree polar opposite of everything I'd ever posted before. Well, yeah, and, yeah, it was. Yeah. And I wanted to know the story, but I also wanted to know a bit about the ordeal. So, so as I was reading your book, because yeah. I know that you're going to be working on a third one, which I'm sure you'll probably get in some details of even more so on the ordeal than oh. what we've discussed here. Oh, for sure. You know, and I and know that, yeah, no, go ahead. And a lot of the stuff that I discussed in therapy that I've never spoken about. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I know that by reading your book that your father passed away a few years ago. And mm -hmm. he died singing the hymn, I Found a Friend in Jesus. Right. How did you find Jesus? So my dad's death better. And he tried to come out to California and I was so messed up on drugs. And he was really trying to talk to me about Jesus. And I just thought, well, this is weird. And I was no headspace or place at all to to be ready to hear it but he really tried and he moved out tried to really connect with us and then moved back home and then on his deathbed he told me um you're gonna live to see the end of days and i was telling him about these these incidences that were happening because i was doing things like in the occult and stuff like that and uh scary things were happening, but, but really happening. And he just said, one word has the power above all names. One word can make everything in every realm disappear that wants to harm you. And it's Jesus. And I was like, okay. He goes, just try it. Like he wasn't trying to push religion on me. He wasn't trying to, he just literally said that on his deathbed and he went, try it. Next time you feel afraid, next time, cause I had this like constant fear of this happening and that happening. It was just, it was just fear. It was a lot now, of did he pass away in the midst of this ordeal? No, he passed away. Um, he passed away. 2016, 2017? It was more like 2010. Oh, it was, okay. It so more, it's it was, long before all of this happened. Yeah. So when did you, so when did, so what pushed you to the very point of calling out to Jesus? So during this intensive, so back, back to this past year, I'm in this intensive and I'm unpacking everything. I'm being, I'm letting my, heart open and I'm unpacking everything and I come home and at the time I wasn't I just know that I was this broken person this paralyzed broken lost broke living in her parents's guest bedroom person who 
didn't know how to navigate life at 52, you know, sorry. Um, I'm going to these therapy sessions because I need to get better. I need to see my family again. My little, my little house of joy, my little, my brother and his babies and his wife. And I have a five hour intensive that day. Um, I come home. And when I say intensive, I guess for the therapist, it was intensive for everybody. It was intense. Like I said, I, t I, I unpacked everything that I've never told anybody to this one person. And I feel like I, I came in and I just said, good night to my mom. I go in the room, I go to fall asleep. And I feel like I, my heart had been so hardened all these years. And I'm at this part of like this openness and this rawness and this, this tenderness and this willingness to like be healed and I'm broken and I'm honest and I'm authentic and I'm, I've gone through all this stuff and I'm had this intensive where I'm just literally trying to be happy, find peace and have joy in my life again. I go home, I'm exhausted. A five hour EMDR intensive is intense. And um, I close my eyes and I drift off and this intense feeling like this intense, like light, holiness, uh, like immediately, it, it's like a wave rushing over me, over my body. And it's so intense and it's so bright, I can't open my eyes. But my eyes are darting behind my eyelids, like in full awareness, like I'm awake. And I start taking these breaths that are deeper than I could ever imagine a body being able to inhale and exhale, like so deep and so deep out. And, and at first I'm afraid and I hear this audible voice that says, you're my child, don't, do not fear. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm just like going, what's going on, right? And I'm rubbing my heels and my feet together like super intensely, cause the, it's so powerful. And I'm being filled with the Holy Spirit in this moment. And that's where this deep breaths are coming in and out. And the manifest presence of God has, has come to me, entered the room and revealed himself in, a, in his mighty sovereign way. I'm probably going to cry, but it's okay. You're allowed to. Yeah. And he shows me, wow, it's just so intense. And all I kept saying was, God, your love is so powerful. God, your love is so powerful. Wow. And all these breaths are taken in and out. And I'm like, with every breath in, more love is coming in. And every breath out, more love is coming in. And I say, I've never felt so much love. And in my mind, I'm thinking, this is all inside my head. Like, this is all, like, this is all internal. Because I'm feeling like we're having this conversation that I'm not vocalizing. And I'm having these questions that when I look to the left is automatically being answered as I look to the right. Like I have a question and it's answered, but it's being shown to me in clippets of like a movie in fast time, like boom, 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 boom. And it's my entire life. And 
he's showing me where he's at in every scenario of my entire life in this movie being shown to me and I'm like laughing and I'm crying and I'm we're communicating without words and I'm saying like I never knew how to pray right nobody told me how to pray and I and I'm like repenting like I'm so sorry I didn't know that that was a sin and I didn't know better and I was I'm so I'm so I'm crying and I guess it got really loud right <laughs> I got really loud because at one point my mom came into the room and was like is everything okay in here and I was like she said I kept repeating and I was crying and I grabbed her and I'm like you have to pray to the Father God through the Holy Spirit in Jesus name and I won't let go of her shirt and I'm repeating it and I'm crying and I just keep repeating that because I remember that being a huge theme like when I used to be afraid I would pray but I didn't really know how to pray and I didn't know who to pray to I just knew it was God but I never knew and how. you were doing it then right but but when he said it was through my son it's through Jesus your salvation who died on the cross for you for your sins for all of this to be washed away it's in his name and so I was like oh my goodness like I never that was the one part of piece of the puzzle that I was never told and then it the thing that my dad said came in in that moment and all of this stuff that like didn't make sense he was just showing me where it was where he was where he this whole time and so I'm telling my mom I'm holding on to her shirt she's trying to escape me and <laughs> just keep repeating it she's like okay I'll try to do better and like <laughs> runs out this is the door and I guess this was this this whole I remember towards the end I had cried and I had repented and I had laughed and he showed me my birth and I guess I was being reborn in that moment and and then he showed me that all those breaths were the Holy Spirit and he told me get some rest child go to sleep get some rest. he said do not fear and so I said okay and I used to have like weird superstitions about like not sleeping on my back because I was afraid of something getting into my soul and like because I had messed with lots of stuff and weird things had happened in my sleep um I think from the occult and I'm certain from the occult oh yeah and, it's a real yeah, world it is it is um it is and that's that's another thing that he showed me you know, which was, and I was like, I'm so sorry. And, you know, and then, you know, I brought that into my own kids. Like there's just so much stuff, but I repented in this eight hours. And then I woke up in the morning and I had bruises on my heels. And the last thing he said to me before get some rest was all of the stuff about your identity, your identity is in my son, Jesus, your, your identity is in your savior, Jesus Christ, your identity can't be stolen um you're going to be okay and and wow i woke so, up so 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 when was so when did this happen about maybe um august of last year of last year now yes. you were baptized in january this year what of this year what was that experience like for you so wow. from, from August to January, 
Well, let's just back up a hair. So from August to January, what did you do after this experience with the Lord? Whew. I mean, I woke up and I had these new eyes. I, I, I call them these new eyes. Like I saw things differently. I saw things in like up close. Like he showed me things in our, in our time together. Cause I had questions, lots of questions like, you know, how, what are bees for? You know, <laughs> I, like we got, it was like intense, personal, intimate. And then I had like other questions like about life and the world and animals. And well, what, what happened during the therapy when you went back? <sighs> Literally, I went, I, I said, I had this experience. Um, it was amazing. Um, I'm going to come in and we're going to talk. And I told her and she didn't get it. Like she thought, I don't know what to do with this. Well, that's understandable for some people. Yeah. And so I went and I was okay with that. I was like, well, you know what? I think that our work, like you got me to this point and I'm so grateful for that. And um, I think that our time together is done. I'm going to put the rest in God's hands. And I think we're finished here and thank you so much. And, and, and that experience there, I felt a sense of urgency to this, this whole thing. I felt a sense of urgency and I really felt like, wow, I really need to, I really like the more, the more I had learned in that eight hour span, I wanted to know more. I was thirsty for more. I really, really wanted to have this relationship and, and it, I wanted to invest all of my time and energy into it um, because it was so new to me. I remember my dad mentioning it this one time, but I'd never opened a Bible. I'd never read the word. I'd never, you know, gone to church and, you know, I don't know how long. And I really didn't want to go to a denominational. I wanted to go to a fellowship that just straight, strictly went from the Bible. Like that was, that was the, that, that's smart. That, that was the message I was picking up. So I immediately reached out to my stepsister who I knew uh, read the Bible and had faith and believed in Jesus. And, and she, I went to this fellowship church, right? That same week, like I wanted to start going to church and that same weekend I've never stopped going. And then I started going into Bible study and prayer groups and uh, my entire schedule was revolving around knowing the word, knowing more of the word, ever waking up to the word. Um, literally every decision asking God about it. Um, should I do this? Should I do that? And what was incredible was I would wait and I would get the answer. And I was just like, this is amazing, man. If I would have just only listened, like all of the pain, if I would, there's a song called Dear Younger Me on Caleb. I relate to that song so much and I cry every time I hear it because it's like, I think wow. that's mercy me. Yes. Yes. <clears throat> it is. And, um, I cry every time I hear it because I feel that. And so, um, I started to just really dive into wanting to have this relationship and, but it was so poignant when he was like, your identity can't be stolen it's in Jesus, it's, you know, it's in your, your savior. And I was like, yeah, right. I can't. And, and, and it literally put 
the GPS coordinates on my future right then and there. And oh my goodness, the gratitude and like how my life has totally changed and who I am today is probably unrecognizable to people who have known me most of my life. But I guess the Lord knew my heart. And in that moment where I was just really willing and open to just be like, I can't do this anymore. Jesus, dad, you know, dad told me, Jesus, I can't do this anymore. And as soon as I said, I can't do this anymore. He went, I've been waiting for that. Been waiting for that. And he came in, changed my life. I mean, oh, and I believe it. I know it. That's why when I sent the, the DM to you, because what was funny was, is I couldn't find the original, your, your original email address. Yeah. And so I'm like, and then I noticed that you were, you were back on the social and that's when I sent the DM to invite you for a TV interview. And mostly because of the fact that when I went, she found the Lord. Yeah. Well, that's you know, the story I um, wanted. And no, no. All right, go ahead. Go ahead. He found me. Like he literally found me where I was. Yeah. Yeah. Because when I, and, and it was funny cause I was telling Tanya this yesterday that when I read the first two books, I, I told her, I said, you know, I, I've been sitting here working on the interview uh, for Bobby Brown. And I said, there's just something that's not right. Right. And so I sat, so, and I'll tell the story. So I sat here yesterday and I probably worked on this interview. I think it's probably like nine hours. Doesn't include the hours of the book research. My goodness. Thank you. And I'm sitting there going, and and I don't know, it had to be early afternoon. I sat here and I went, I just stopped. I had to get up, walk away from my computer. And I said, Lord, there's something not right. Yeah. I get the first book, I get the second, but that's not the story here. Right. That's the past. Right. I said, I'm interested in what you did. Right. And so I said, Lord, you have to show me how to put this together. Cause I had, I I had the, I had the, the rough draft of the intro and I'm like, She's not the cherry pie girl anymore. I don't, you know, in a way it's kind of funny because I'm sitting there going, she doesn't, she, she knows she is and, and was all at the same time. Yeah. But there's a whole new beginning. That's yeah. what I want to know. And then all of a sudden I come back into my office and I sit down in front of the, the whole file, multiple file, and I'm sitting yeah. there going, now I got it because yeah. then what was funny was when I text you yesterday and I said, I've read both books. Is there anything that you want to add uh, to this? That was me throwing out going, okay, let's just see where this goes. Yeah. You text me back and then you really text me back. And I yeah. went, that's exactly what I was looking for. Yeah, I went, Lord, you answered exactly what I needed 
And are you amazed? I mean, so you got baptized in January. Yes. I just I had I, a cheese on the whole time, just like a cheeseburger head, like just <laughs> just so happy, like goofy cartoon character smile. But when you came out of the water, I mean, it, it you must have you must have washed away the first two books. Oh, I did. I couldn't possibly read those. I don't like you know. I said, if you want to know some history, that's a good way to read them. But oh my goodness, yeah, definitely not my story anymore. Not no, the no, it's not. And ladies and gentlemen, if I were you, I'm I I would rather have you more interested in the Bobby Jean Brown that you see before you now than the two books written prior. I mean, yeah. we all have a past. This girl's got a past. <laughs> I mean, if there was a book of Bobby, yeah, I, I, could, I could see that. Um, yeah. But you know what's funny was, is I'm, I'm sitting there listening to the audio of the second book in it, and I look down and it says four minutes to go. Yeah. And you're reading the very last page. And I hit pause. And I went, does she realize what the last page says? So in your book, Cherry on Top, yeah. towards the ending of the book, you have this sentence. What? The dark times can take us to the brightest places. Do you think you finally arrived to that brighter place in your life? Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. Yes, I do. That's crazy. I thought it was crazy too, but then I thought, wait a minute. Wow. She wrote the very words yeah. that the Lord was about to fulfill yeah. four years later, three years yeah. later. Wow. Yeah, because I haven't opened that book since I wrote it. That's and intense. Je and Jesus's ministry was three years. Wow. That's incredible. That's I'm like I'm amazed and that's awesome and man, people are like he's he's got something huge for you and I'm like I don't know what it is. <laughs> I'm like I don't know what it is, but I'm here for it. Like whatever it is, I'm here for it. And there's there's been days that I've been like, Lord, why am I here? What am I doing? Where am I going? What's my purpose? Um and what's funny is when I pray those things, he tells me and he says that it's in the waiting and it's in his timing and it's got so many purposes for all, you know, like family members and people I meet and like, he, he answers me, which is amazing. And then I get, I'm learning patience and compassion and kindness. And it's a, pro it's a process. Like it didn't happen overnight. Like I didn't become this, like, you know, I, I've gone from like an F bombing, raunchy, very jaded, uh, perverse, probably person through experiences in life and stuff to like really working on trying to be like Jesus, be like 
he wants me to be or, or live this purposeful life and to I, I really want to live out the, his purpose. And, and during that eight hour experience, I remember with these breaths that I thought were so deep and intense, but just filling me with all of this love, I said, until I take my last breath, I'm going to do it for your glory. Amen. And, uh, and that's what it's that's what it's all about. Yeah. When you're a believer, everything that you do, what everything that we should do right. is for his glory. Right. The journey is allow is to surrender, to trust, um, and to allow him to refine us. Yeah. Like the word says to refine us like silver to the point to where the only thing he sees in us is his yeah. reflection. That's right. So and he, yeah. he see he sees himself in you now. I'm so grateful and humbled by that. Um, and I'm just, you know, every day trying to put on the full armor <laughs> and just being like, to some people, I may sound crazy. To some friends, they're like, I don't know what's different, but I'm loving it. And then to some people, they're like, dropped off. They dropped off, which is fine too, which is good because I don't need those kinds of people in my life anymore anyway. Yeah. And yeah. So this is who I am now. You can love it or leave it. And I have a purpose and, and God's working it out in my life and sometimes his timing isn't what I would love but his timing is perfect. His timing is perfect and yeah. I I'm going to guess that uh, the Lord has been doing some things and just like your dad said you will see yeah the end of your days um, yeah. and as the word said with long life the Lord shall satisfy us uh and Bobby, you know, one thing I one, one thing of the thing I figured out in your book was, and you even said it, you like getting the last word. So <laughs> I'm gonna allow you to have the last word per se. So what's next for Bobby Brown? Just following following Jesus and his guidance for my life and whatever road he tells me to go down, I'm gonna go. It's gonna go it, it's narrow but I'm a willing servant and hopefully he says good job. And I know that he will. And ladies and gentlemen, Bobby Brown is proof that anyone, no matter who you are or how sordid your past may be, can overcome the greatest and the most harrowing of life's obstacles by surrendering the will, the self and the soul to the power of God's love. Now, Bobby is now embarking on a new journey, redemption, reinvention, coming home, letting go, self-awareness, and more importantly, salvation. Now, God knows that our dreams are always waiting on us, and if we take time to listen, we'll learn he has never left our side and is willing to grant the desires of our heart if we trust him. Now, Bobby has chosen to walk with the Lord hand in hand and into the light. So get ready, Hollywood. Bobby Brown is back. And the Lord never saw her as the cherry pie girl. He saw her <laughs> as his masterpiece. Uh.
Thank you. <laughs> and refined her with what else? His amazing grace. Bobby, I want to thank you so much for being so open. And, uh, and I know that uh, your, testimony, your testimony alone uh, has blessed so many today. Thank you so much, Ward. You've been a blessing. This has been a blessing. And we are going to say goodbye and have a great day. <laughs> Amen to that. And ladies and gentlemen, as for me, thank you for watching. I'll see you next time.